to the glory of the Lord this morning. Awesome. There we go. Come on. This past Wednesday night at about nine o'clock, I was doing some scripture reading and spending some time by myself, which in our home in this season of life is very rare. Jordan had gone to bed. Selah was in bed and quiet. And I was spending some time with the Lord and I was reading from Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, you see Jesus being presented in the temple, and you see his circumcision happening on the eighth day. You see characters like Simeon and Anna. And sometimes when I read the scriptures, I don't know about you, but I don't always get a divine revelation. And it's not always this like, whoa, wow, God, insane, this is nuts. Like sometimes that happens. But sometimes it's just habitual. I'm immersing myself into the scriptures. I'm like, okay, cool. Jesus circumcised, whatever, no big deal. And then I flipped a couple pages and began reading when Jesus begins his ministry. And at the bottom of the study Bible that I was actually reading, there was a depiction of an archaeological find of this ancient Byzantine church, these, these ruins that have been discovered in Capernaum. So where Jesus' ministry was kind of headquartered, there have been these these ruins of an ancient Byzantine church that have been found there, and there was a depiction of it in my Bible, drawn out. And I noticed, after looking it up on Google Images, thank you, Google Images, I I saw a picture of this church, this church ruins, where many uh, archaeologists, there we go, archaeologists believe to be the place where Peter lived. So there's ruins on top of Peter's house and his church was built. And the church was built octagonally. So the shape of this church was octagonal. And I was like, that is very interesting. So my nerdy self starts looking stuff up about, uh, you know, church architecture and specifically octagonal churches, which apparently in the Byzantine period, you saw a lot of churches built octagonally. And I'm like, what is the deal with octagonal churches? And I came to realize that the number eight symbolizes renewal, rebirth, and regeneration. And one of the the specific references to the number eight is on the eighth day, Jesus is circumcised. And it's as though he has launched the inbreaking of the new covenant. We have the six days of creation and on the seventh day, the Lord rests. And the eighth day, so to speak, would represent new creation. So this idea of the number eight and octagonal shapes represents renewal, rebirth, and regeneration. And then I started thinking to myself, what shape is our sanctuary built in? And I literally got my phone out and got a photo, and I started counting the columns and the sides in our sanctuary, and I was like, one, two, three, four, five, we're almost there, six, seven, glory, eight sides. I was like, what? I texted Corey that night, and in like all caps, like I was screaming at him through my phone. 
I was like, dude, this is insane. Because I feel like only Corey would get my insanity in that moment. No one else would. Some of you are like, that's just kind of extra, Spence. But I was like, honestly, we have been talking about and praying for and seeking renewal for years. And to see that this sanctuary that we're in, this building that once was dead, come back to life, signifying rebirth, as well as our pursuit of renewal in our city and in our world. I'm like, we're in a building that architecturally confirms that vision. Come on, that's glory. I was blown away, okay? So I don't know how your week was, but that was a pretty cool moment for me. Uh, that being said, welcome to church. It's good to see you guys. I, I'm glad that you are here this morning. Uh, we are officially in the fall season. Come on. Are you guys pumped? It feels like fall this morning. Uh, fall fashion's here. It's my favorite time for fashion. Anybody love fall fashion? Yes? Come on. Thank you, Lord. Flannels? Love it. Boots? Hello. It's wonderful. Um, we have been in this vision series for the last couple of weeks called Stages of the Journey. And in this teaching series, we are simply asking a question. And that question is, where am I in my discipleship journey with Jesus? Where am I in my discipleship journey with Rabbi Jesus? Many of you may have began the journey a long time ago. And here you are now, and you're wondering, where am I in this discipleship journey with Jesus? Some of you may be brand new to the way of Jesus. And some of you are still just trying to figure out Jesus and the transcendent and truth and all of these different things. But we want to be able to help you recognize where you might be in your journey. I made the statement in our first week that regardless of if you follow Jesus or not, you are a human being. And because you are a human, that means two things. One, you are on a journey. You're on a journey of becoming. You are becoming someone. Uh, James K. Smith makes the reference that we are like existential sharks. We're always on the move. We're always after something. There's a vision of the good life. There's a telos that we are after, no matter if we follow Jesus or not. But for us, as the people of God, I want us to ask the question, where am I in my discipleship journey with Jesus? Or what is a map? What is a nice blueprint or a map or framework for maturity in spiritual formation? Because that is our telos. That is our end goal, to be a mature people to move from being infants to becoming mature adults. So those are two very important questions that we are addressing in this teaching series. Now, something unique to this teaching series that we kind of introduced, if you saw it in our weekly email, is that we have a form where you can submit questions. You can submit questions anonymously. If you have a question you would like to ask in response to this teaching series, we are going to try our best to try and address some of those questions at some point in our teaching series. So uh, hopefully that's some incentive for you to actually sign up for the email. I'd love to get you on it. And if you have a question that you want to just ask, feel free to um, fill out that form, and we'll hopefully get to it at some point in our teaching series. Now, a couple of things that I want to reemphasize that I can't stress enough about this teaching series. So here's a few things I want to make sure I can emphasize for all of you. Six things. The first is that this is theory. 
not doctrine. What we are exploring is not doctrine, it's not dogma, it's not theology, it's not systematic, it's theory, okay? Although everything that we are pulling from comes from the tradition of the church. It comes from thinkers throughout church history. It's not just a new idea, it's a couple thousand years old. So that's the first thing I want you guys to realize, that this is a theory, not a Christian doctrine necessarily. Uh, So I'm going to be making very broad generalizations in this teaching series. So just have that awareness. I'm making broad generalizations. Though they might deeply resonate with you, they might not resonate with everyone. So I understand that, okay? The second thing is that life is not linear. I can't stress that enough. Life is not linear, okay? The modern West makes it seem as though life is meant to be linear. It's all about graduation, moving on to the next step, you know, getting a white picket fence and a house in the suburbs, having your kids, then retiring with a 401k, going and moving down to Baldhead Island or Wrightsville Beach or something in retirement and living a happily ever after type of life. Now, that's not life, okay? Life is not linear. But growth is a part of maturing, okay? All of us, all of you should be growing in the way of Jesus. You should be maturing. 1 Peter 2.2 has been a verse that we've gone back to where he specifically talks about the notion of growing up in salvation. We need to grow up. We need to mature. We need to change. We will change. Inevitably, if you are following Jesus, you will change. Now, I recognize also that there are going to be seasons of quick growth. I would even argue the first couple of stages that we have looked at, there might be a rapid movement into those stages. We can all look at points in our biological development where there was rapid growth over a short period of time. You may have grown four inches over a summer. That's quick growth. But then there's also long periods of time where you don't feel like you changed much, you know? You're 35 and you look like you did when you were 25. Someone praise God, okay? (laughs) Now, I will say, I asked someone the other day in our house church, we were talking about our age for some reason. And uh, just so you guys know, I'm 29. I'll be 30 very soon. And so 30 is like the new 40. People dread turning 30 these days. I don't understand why. 30 is like prime, okay? But uh, someone... Uh, we were talking about we were talking about age, and someone was there, and I said, "How old do you think that I am?" Which is not a good question to ask if you don't want your feelings hurt. And they were like, "Um, 35, 36," and I was like, "You could leave my house right now." <laughs> and here's the cool thing: there were some people in our house church who were older, and like, "How old are you?" And like, "Oh, 26." <laughs> not so fast. I'm actually 34. Watch out, you know. God's been good to me. And I'm like, well, clearly he has not been good to me, okay? Anyway, but life is not linear, but growth is a part of maturing. So we all should be growing. The third thing is that though these are stages, and we're calling them stages, they are also domains where maturity takes place. So you don't just mature along the way, leaving the stages behind, but you mature in each domain. You mature in all of these. You don't just leave one and move to the next. Though you enter into new stages, that is very true, I believe, but you mature in each of these domains on the map of formation and on the map of maturity. 
okay? The fourth thing is, at some point in this teaching series, whether it's happened already or not, you will experience some sort of tension. You will experience some sort of tension. Because a lot of what we are looking at hopefully is functioning like a mirror that is zooming in on our individual lives. And so there's going to at some point be a wrestling with the idea of the stages. And so I just want us to be aware that tension most often produces growth. Okay? Tension produces growth. That is deeply important. The fifth thing is that there is more for all of you in the journey. There is so much more. There is so much more for you to experience. So much more that God has for you. But you have to allow him. He's already offered his entire self to you. The fullness of Christ is at our fingertips. We have to make our soul available to him. But there is more for you. You may have hit a dry spot in the journey. You may have hit the wall. But there is more for you. There's so much more. And guys, I can't stress this enough. I I know I, I teach every week or sometimes every other week or whatever it may be, but I don't just teach to to regurgitate content that I have researched all week long. I actually am going through the process as well. I'm going through a journey of formation. If you spend enough time with me, you'll realize I have a lot of sin in my life that I need to work through. Okay? I want us to realize that, that I'm on the journey, but I care, and Jordan and I both care so much about your transformation. We care so much about your transformation into wholeness, abundance, and healing. And the one thing that often breaks our heart the most, at least breaks mine the most, is when we feel like we care more about your transformation than you do. We care. I care about where you are on the journey. And I want to see you mature. I want to see you grow. And I want to challenge you. And I I want tension in your life. Because I want you to have a strong root system. Trees, if you did not know this, trees that don't face any sort of wind resistance very rarely develop a strong root system. And so I want you to face and enter into resistance. All right? So that you might grow. That is my desire at the end of the day. And then the last thing is this. Discipleship with Jesus is hard. Discipleship with Jesus is very hard. Don't let anyone tell you it is easy. It is hard, and sometimes it is not fun. And it's okay to say that. How many of you have seen Karate Kid before? Come on, classic 80s movie, yes. There's a moment in the Karate Kid where Daniel is waxing Mr. Miyagi's car. And he hates it. He's like, this is so monotonous. What am I doing? I hate it. But what's happening in that moment is he's becoming the karate kid. And there are going to be moments in your life with Jesus, in discipleship with Jesus, 
and even in this series where it's going to feel hard. But in this trial, or in the challenge, or in the monotony, in the tension, you are actually becoming someone. You're becoming someone. So discipleship with Jesus is hard. And we're going to talk more about that next week as we talk about the wall and the dark night of the soul and the movement inward, okay? Also, each week builds on each other in some ways, so be sure to try and stay on track with the teachings, either on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or whatever it may be. So, last week we talked about moments with God and managing behavior, uh, that our entire journey, our entire journey, all of ours, begins with an encounter with God. It begins with a moment. But it doesn't stop there. That continues to be a part of our journey, but it doesn't stop there. We step into eventually becoming disciples of Jesus, where our encounter changes our behavior. We actually begin to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We move beyond just being feeling-centric in our formation to uh, also our behavior changes, or we become more behavior-centric in this movement towards maturity. And the question that we ask moves from who is God to what must I do? That's the progression of questions we tend to ask, generally speaking, in this movement towards maturity. Now, you may continue asking these questions, but these are specific seasons and moments where you're really asking, who is God? And then asking, what must I do? You're moving from feeling-centric to behavior-centric. It's not that you'd stop encountering God. No, that's, that's really the basis of the journey. But you move forward beyond just your feelings being pricked and prodded. You move beyond just the tingles, and you actually begin to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We first are captivated by God. Then we surrender to Jesus as Lord. And then we commit to following Jesus as teacher and as rabbi. Many of us may be just captivated with God. Or we have moved to a place of surrender to Jesus as Lord, but we aren't really sure how that impacts our behavior. So then we move into a place of recognizing that Jesus is rabbi and teacher. And to follow him means that he is changing the way in which we not only view reality, but how we live in everyday life. I heard this this past week. I thought this was helpful, that our best intentions won't shape who we become. It will be our teacher. Our best intentions, your best intentions. You might have the intention to follow Jesus. You might have the intention to be a resilient disciple of Jesus, but that's not going to shape who you become. What will shape who you become is the person that you allow to teach you. And all of us have a teacher, all of us have a master. All of us are a disciple of something or someone. So we have to ask the question, who are we allowing to teach us? And are we allowing Jesus to teach us as rabbi and as master? That is then how we are formed into the person of Christ. So today we examine the third stage or domain of the journey, and that is mission with Jesus. Mission with Jesus. Now, I do realize that depending on your journey and where you are in the journey, that this domain and stage may have come sooner in life and even before stage two, depending on maybe the church that you've grown up in and the spaces you found yourself in. But generally speaking, it seems as though the breadth 
or the width of this stage can only begin after you've experienced the domain and stage that is managing behavior. And here's why I say that. Joe Saxon makes this statement where she says, we cannot lead people to where we haven't been. You can only lead someone and guide someone to the place that you've been to. So then she asked the question, the one we're asking, so where are we as disciples? And this is why I have come to the conclusion that this stage and moving towards maturity comes after a shift in behavior, a managing behavior. You then move into mission with Jesus because you can only lead people and train people and move people to the place and places that you have been to. So that kind of lays the groundwork for the chronology of these stages in a person's life. And I also realize that some of you are very inward people. You're, nat- you're naturally a contemplative. Anybody here, like a nat- naturally you're a mystic and contemplative? Some of you are, yes. Uh, some of you are like, actually, I don't do anything regarding silence and solitude. I hate being quiet. I hate the spiritual disciplines. I just want to go and serve and use my hands and create and be in community and sing loud songs. I realize that for some of you, you're like, well, actually, I started here, and then maybe I started here for some of you. I realize that. So kind of give some grace to the blueprint a bit, but recognizing that I think all of these domains and spaces are a part of a fully mature adult in the way of Jesus. And so today we see this stage that is mission with Jesus. Now, just prior to the call, the invitation of the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew records this in verses 13 through 17. So hear these words from Matthew in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, just prior to the invitation of the disciples around the Sea of Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he, being Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, For the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is then after this that we see the invitation of the disciples. The call to follow Jesus. And then later in Matthew 4, at the very end, Matthew articulates that from that time on, Jesus went from village to village, proclaiming the gospel and healing the sick and casting out demons. What a riveting resume that Jesus is building. This helps us have an awareness that the invitation into discipleship happens within the broader context of Jesus' mission. The invitation for you and I into discipleship happens within the broader context of Jesus' mission. And this is why the shift from being self-centered to being others-centered is so very important in the journey. Because, and here's why, your maturity 
and your fruit bearing is for the sake of the world. Your maturation, your fruit bearing is for the sake of the world. Jesus doesn't invite you to follow him just so you can get better, just so you can be changed. He's actually inviting you to participate in what he's actually already doing. It's not just your journey. You're actually joining his journey. Because in this story, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is on his way past the Sea of Galilee, and it's on his way that he calls the disciples. So when he calls you into the journey, you're just joining his journey. And now your journey gets merged with his. The invitation into discipleship with Jesus to become an apprentice or a student or a follower of Jesus happens within the context of Jesus's mission to the world. And your maturity and your fruit bearing is for the sake of others. I heard someone say one time that if you want to be able to get a good litmus test of your maturity in Jesus, then maybe you should just ask some of the relationships around you. People see, people know. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But you and I bear fruit for others, so that they might be able to taste and see that the Lord is, in fact, good. One of the primary ways, if not the primary way, that people taste and see that the Lord is good is from the fruit of others. Your fruit and my fruit. Robert Mulholland, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, says, Scripture reveals that human wholeness is always actualized in nurturing one another toward wholeness, whether within the covenant community of God's people or in the role of God's people in healing brokenness and injustice in the world. Spiritual formation for the sake of others will be seen to move against the grain of a privatized and individualized religion. And the deep-seated belief that spiritual life is a matter between the individual and God. There can be no wholeness in the image of Christ, which is not incarnate in our relationships with others, both in the body of Christ and in the world. Your intimacy with Jesus, your formation, your journey is not privatized. You are actually on a team And in your formation, you do take moments to practice the way on your own, to do drills on your own, so to speak, to be with Jesus individually. But the larger scope of the story is a team going after something with their captain. And you've been invited to participate in it. Your growth into the mission of God with Jesus is a recognition that the change inside of you and that's happening inside of you is a part and a catalyst for the changing of the world. Because what's happening inside of you, God's doing in the world. And your change becomes a catalyst for God changing the world. The renovation of your heart is a part of the renovation of other hearts. You are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared for you to do long ago. Not just to say that you've accomplished something. 
Partnering with God is not just for the sake of you being able to pat yourself on the back or getting a trophy. It is actually so that Christ can accomplish his mission through you and I by way of his Holy Spirit. What an invitation that the creator of the cosmos has invited you to co-labor with him, to partner with him, to serve alongside of him, to work with him. He's not just invited you into a privatized, individualized, one-on-one session of change. He has said, come along the journey, and as we journey towards what I'm after, you're going to be changed. Because what this world needs is more and more people who are made whole and complete and are healed and reflect my character. You are being changed, yes, for healing inside of yourself, but also for the sake of the healing of the world. This is what it means to be an image bearer, to reflect or represent God in this world. And Jesus is crafting us, shaping us, molding us, whittling us down, training us so that we might become a more pure representation of that image in this world. Because if we look around, humans or image bearers are not. The renovation of your heart is a catalyst for the renovation of others' hearts. So Christ has invited you on his mission. And his mission is to heal and to bring restoration to this world by way of his presence. I just want you guys to to know that the, the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. We don't have some specific mission in this world. God is on mission And he's chosen us to be the vehicle by way of his Holy Spirit to accomplish this mission in the world. Now, on three different occasions, Jesus sends out his disciples because God has a mission and we are his strategy. We are his tools. We are his strategy to accomplish his mission. And on three different occasions, Jesus sends out his disciples First, he sends out the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. Then he sends out the 72 in Luke 10. And then he gives, as Janika read a second ago, his famous great commission in Matthew 28. I want to read it again for you. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In your formation journey, at some point, you begin to realize that not only am I working for Jesus, but I am working with and alongside of Jesus. Early in our formation, we seem to believe that we are just working for our master. But then there's a shift that happens where we realize, actually, I am working with my master. I'm working with Jesus. You are, as I said a second ago, his partner or his co-laborer in his mission to bring healing and renewal to the world. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, where he is talking about him and Apollos by saying, we are God's co-workers. 
that we work together with God in his mission. And we are on a team together working alongside of one another, following Jesus as he is on mission in this world. And this is why some of us can get left behind. Because God is on the move. God is on the move. So we journey with him as he's moving. Now he might walk. He might move slow. And sometimes we get ahead of God, do we not? We sprint ahead of God and we're like, all right, God, come on. Let's go. I found a way. I found a, 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 what my wife calls a tom cut. I found a tom cut. It's a quicker way to get to where you're trying to go. And he's like, you need to slow down and get behind me. But he is moving. He's just walking. So what do we do as Westerners in 2022? We get so impatient. <laughs> Jeez. How many of you have been through a renovation project before where you thought to yourself, this is literally never going to be completed? Never going to happen. Sometimes we feel that way about the mission of God in this world. We look around and we're like, what is happening? God, things are getting worse, not better. Here we are. Should things not be better by now? But we have to realize that in a renovation project, Demolition happens before renovation. And demolition is part of renovation, tearing down to the studs in order to renew and restore ultimately. We are his co-workers. We on his team. But you aren't just with him. You are also with others as well. And we're cool with being with Jesus. Things get tough when we have to be with others. Tyler Staten says this, There is no version of being with Jesus and not being with others. There is not a version of discipleship with Jesus that doesn't include other people. There is no version of being with Jesus and not being with others. Even as he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, Surely I am with you always. He is saying that to a group of people, a community. So, The goal is to be on mission with Jesus and with others. We collectively are on mission together. Howard Thurman says, there are two questions that we have to ask ourselves. The first is, where am I going? And the second is, who will go with me? Where am I going and who will go with me? We're asking the question of where am I going? But as we move into the stage of mission with Jesus, we're asking the question, who's going with me? Who's along for the ride? Who's in this journey with me? Those are two very important questions because we go after the goal together. So now we get to the point where we're going to look at some characteristics, general characteristics of this stage of the journey. Okay, here is the first characteristic of this stage. Your private life changes your public life versus the other way around. Often in our early stages of following Jesus, our public perception drives our private pursuits. We want to look the part. And so to look the part, we have these private pursuits. But in this stage, you actually have been so captivated by Jesus you love Jesus, you're following Jesus, that your private life changes your public life by default. Like, you can't help it. 
You have been so close to the fire that when you come out, people know you're warm. Your private life changes your public life. In Matthew 10, 1, when Jesus sends out the 12 for the first time, he calls his disciples first to himself. The call of discipleship, first and foremost, is always to Jesus. To be with Jesus. That's the first call. He calls them to himself. In this this part of the journey where we are recognizing that our private life is really what changes our public life, we also begin to have a greater understanding of the nature of sin. For most of us, early in our journey, sin is primarily just a moral break, an ethical break in God's vision for how humanity is to flourish. And though that is true, in this stage, as we mature, we begin to realize that yes, sin is a moral break, but sin really is a break of relational and covenantal relationships. That sin is about presence separation. Sin is about there's a relational break. That something else has taken the place of the all-powerful, almighty, all-good God. And you begin to realize that in this stage as you mature. It is also in this stage where you begin to be convicted because you're not doing the things that God has asked you to do. Up until this point, it's about doing the things that you're not supposed to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And you get really, like, kind of frustrated and honestly bored. You're like, come on. Like, like being a follower of Jesus is not fun. <laughs> it's boring. <laughs> because you're primarily thinking about what you can't do. In this stage, you're stepping into what God has asked you to do. And the exhilaration of the journey that's fulfilling, let's just be honest, our deepest human calling of having purpose and meaning that's beyond ourselves But it's in this moment we begin to face conviction because we're not doing the things we're supposed to do. It's the the sins of what are called omission. You are omitting the things that you are supposed to do. God has asked you, I need you to go serve at this organization. I need you to go do this thing. I need you to um, give away some resources, give away money. I need you to sell your house. Or I need you to move to this other country and live on mission. And you're like, oh man, how do I respond? This is the stage where God is asking you to participate. So we begin to actually respond in obedience. The second here is the characteristic of training others. When you're on mission with Jesus, you actually are training others in the way. We call this making disciples. In Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the call, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Build them, train them, teach them. Invite people into your life. Let people see how you live. And in this stage, it does require intentionality. It requires you seeking individuals out that you're close to and entering into discipleship with one another. You have been changed, and so you desire others to be changed. You're like, I want you to have what I have. I want you to experience I want you to experience life and fullness and abundance and goodness. I want you to have that as well. So you invite people into your life and you begin to train them in the way of Jesus and teach them. So the first characteristic private life changes public life. The second is you begin training others or making disciples. The third characteristic of this stage or this domain is what James Davison Hunter a sociologist calls faithful presence. 
faithful presence. So what does faithful presence mean? This simply means that you recognize cognitively that the Holy Spirit is inside of you and that the light of the world lives inside of you and that because of that, you are now, as Jesus has called us, the light of the world. So when you walk into a dark space, you are carrying that light into that space and you are living faithfully into that wherever you are in your neighborhood, in your job, as a parent, with your friends, with your family. You are living faithfully as a light, as salt and light in this world. You begin to realize that your work matters. What you do with your hands matters. You're a teacher, that matters. You're an entrepreneur, that matters. You're an engineer, that matters. You're a stay-at-home mom, that really matters. Greatly. It is in this space that you actually begin to recognize that the whole of your life is on mission. For a good portion of your life up to this point, potentially, you thought mission was just a program of the church that sent people to other countries. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not a missionary. And I have a friend who says that if you don't think you're a missionary, you probably still need one. You are a missionary because you are a follower of Jesus. You are on mission with Jesus in this world. Now, if he asks you to go somewhere else, you better go. But if he says, I want you to be faithful right here in Greensboro, North Carolina, you better be faithful. You don't flip on and off being on mission depending on where you live. I'm a missionary now. No, I'm not. No, I'm I'm not. No, (laughs) you either are or you're not. It's to live on mission, to be a faithful presence wherever you are. To live, as we have said before, a questionable life. That people question the way in which you live. Your work matters. And I have a theology, honestly, guys, that what we create, the goodness we create in this world, will carry over into the new creation. Because guess what? When you enter into the new creation, you are not going to start over as an infant. God's not totally doing away with you. He's restoring you. But that's not the way in which the vision goes based on the resurrection of Jesus. What you create right now actually matters. And there's a good chance it might carry through into the new creation. That's powerful. And if that doesn't give you a sense of meaning, I really, truly don't know what will. The Oxford theologian Michael Green says this, 80% or more of the evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians just explaining their life to their friends and family. Do you have people in your life that honestly are just like dumbfounded by how you live? They're just like, I don't really get your generosity. I don't get your disposition. I don't get how you're so patient and so loving and so joyful. I don't get how you live so simply. I don't get how you're so content. That makes no sense to me. I'm curious though. This is the call of faithful presence. Uh, in his book, uh, Five Habits of Highly Missional People, or it's, it's called Surprise the World, but he looks at five habits. Michael Frost looks at a basic, practical guide for living on mission. And here are five simple practices for living a life on mission. If you're looking to move forward in maturity, I think these are very helpful. And here they are up on the screen for you. The first is to bless. You need to figure out how you can live a life of blessing. Bless others with word, deed, resources. 
Bless other people. The second is eat with people. The table is sacred. Come to the table. Life happens at the table. Intimacy is created. Community is created at the table. I don't believe you can have hospitality without a meal. It's very important. Eat with people. The third is listen. In other words, listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the promptings of God. Be aware of what he is asking of you. The fourth is to learn. Learn the way of Jesus. Learn the teachings of Jesus. This is part of our rhythm of life as a church. You need to learn Jesus. And the fourth is sent, or excuse me, the fifth is sent. In other words, live in a way that is proclaiming and speaking to the reality of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God by way of King Jesus. That's called the gospel. In what way are you living a life that is a witness to that reality? That the restoration of all things has begun by way of God's presence. Five habits of highly missional people. The fourth and final characteristic of this stage and domain is prophetic ministry. Prophetic ministry. Now, I don't just mean the weird stuff, though I also do mean the weird stuff. This can be serving people on the margins, caring for the poor, outside of church initiatives, not just showing up to a church outreach event or a church serve project. I'm talking about you are living your life and finding ways to serve and care for the poor and those on the margins and those experiencing injustice. That you don't have to have the church to tell you where to go on a Saturday at five o'clock, but that throughout the week you are seeking opportunities to serve the poor. And maybe you consistently give of your time and resources to those on the margins. There is also, as I said a second ago, a supernatural component to this stuff. Prophetic ministry is uh, spirit-led. Keep in mind, when Jesus sends out the disciples, he asks them to do two things, really three. One is to proclaim the gospel. The other two are to heal the sick and cast out demons. Hello? What if at the end of our gathering, I'm like, all right, I need uh, everyone to come up in pairs, two by two. All right, cool. All right, the Holy Spirit is in you. We're going to pray you be filled with the Spirit. We can anoint you with oil, whatever you need, okay? Fill with the Spirit. And as you leave today, we are praying in Jesus' name that you walk in power, that this week you will go heal the sick and cast out some demons. Now, some of you are like, that's weird. And I'm like, that's the gospel. That's the scriptures. Okay? So, In this stage, you actually begin to live a life where you wake up in the morning, hopefully consistently. I know life's crazy, but you wake up and go, Holy Spirit, I'm going to go where you are moving today. Don't just invite the Holy Spirit into where you are. Say, God, Father, Daddy, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I want to be where you are moving today. Like, you might have some crazy encounters that happen. I uh, was eating with Jordan uh, a couple months ago at Blue Agave, which great Mexican restaurant. If you guys want to, you know, nice little place to go check out at some point. Um, nice recommendation. We were eating dinner, and uh, I'll be honest. Like, sometimes I'm just not very aware of the Holy Spirit. I'm not. I'm like, I'll read the scriptures. I'll get in the Bible, and I will try to love people well. But, like, being prompted by the Spirit in a moment, you're like, oh, man, that's terrifying. And we're eating dinner, and there's our waitress, and she's talking to us, and the Spirit started prompting me. And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, please leave right now. (laughs) Leave! 
And you know how the longer you disobey, the more you start to sweat, the more you start to feel at like this unease or like you're not at rest. And I'm like, <laughs> he's like, I need, I need you to give a word to this waitress. I'm like, not one of those. Uh-uh. I'm not doing the whole, I got a word. I'm not doing that. Okay. He's like, you better do it. And I'm like, Ugh! gosh. So she comes back <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I told her, I prefaced, I said, this is weird. And that's okay. If you're like testing the waters, it's okay. Let the person know. Hey, honestly, this is weird. I said, um, does the word princess mean anything to you at all? And she was like, she's like, my dad used to call me that all the time when I was a little girl. And I said, I just want you to know that the eternal father who created the world, he also calls you a princess as well. And you, like the glow on her face, like she was both like weirded out and like full of joy at the same time. And I don't know what happened after that for her. I don't know. But I felt at peace that I responded in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And I proclaimed a prophetic truth that she's a princess and that her father loves her and smiles at her and wants nothing but intimacy with her. Be willing to have moments. Be willing. Just another example of a few years ago. And again, these are just a couple that come to my mind. Just because I, I want to be responsive, I want to be responsible to the, to the nudging of the Spirit and be responsive to the Holy Spirit. I was... Um, walking into Union downtown, getting coffee, and one of the baristas was in the back, on her back, because her back hurt so bad she couldn't, like, stand up at all. This was years ago. And I'm like, oh, like, Rachel, what's wrong? She's like, my back's killing me. I can't, I, I can't even stand up. My back is killing me so bad, so bad. And the Holy Spirit's like, you better pray for healing right now. And I'm like, no, thank you. You can leave. And he's like, no, you need to pray for healing right now. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Rachel, this is weird. Um, can I pray for healing for you? She's like, yes, please. So she's laying on the floor. I touch her shoulder because I'm trying to keep this thing, like, appropriate. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, Holy Spirit, it's nothing crazy. I'm like, Holy Spirit, you love this daughter. Would you just heal her right now in Jesus' name? And then the Holy Spirit's like, ask her if it's better. And I'm like, I'm not, uh-uh, I'm not looking like a fool up here, okay? And I'm like, how's your back? And she's like, eh? And she's kind of like, did something just happen? She's like, it's still kind of sore. And the Spirit's like, pray again. And I'm like, oh, man, what? I go through this for like three, three or four times. And listen, I'm not advocating praying promises. You can't do that. You're not God, okay? You, you can't. You can just be responsible sponsor to the Holy Spirit, and that's really all you can do. So I'm praying, like, Lord, please heal her. I'm asking, that's all. Heal her. Sure enough, that girl stands up, and she starts moving around, and her back, like, back pain is totally gone. And I'm like, whoa, come on, God! Yes! That's some glory right there! Yes! And he's like, see, I told you. Just being responsive to the Holy Spirit, okay? It is in this stage of maturity that you begin to actually participate in prophetic, spirit-led ministry and following the Spirit's promptings. It's going where the Spirit is working, taking faith risks. Take some risk with your prayers. 
take some risks. But guess what, guys? It's uncomfortable to be obedient. It's uncomfortable. Faith risks are uncomfortable, but you need to be obedient. If your entire formation with Jesus and journey is comfortable, I don't know if you're following the Spirit's promptings. Because it's uncomfortable. So the question that we ask in this stage as I wrap up, and I truly mean wrap up, I really do, is how can God use me? Simple. How can God use me and my wiring and who I am in my job, in my family? Some of you guys have family that don't know Jesus. Some of you have family that's experienced some tragedy or there's some um, patterns of sin in your family. And God, maybe you're the one to love well. You can't save anyone, but you can love people well. How can God use me? Now, you can obviously get stuck in this stage, and here's a couple of different ways in which you can get stuck. The first is by doing the work of Jesus, but forgetting to be with Jesus. This is the whole um, do justice, love mercy, but forget to walk humbly with your God trap. We can't forget to walk with Jesus. The second way that we can sometimes get stuck is if we don't see quick fruit. Or we're just rejected. People reject us. Which, by the way, they rejected Jesus. The third thing is in this stage, if you're not careful, quote-unquote love displaces truth. Love never displaces truth. They're not opposite of one another. They go hand in hand. The fourth thing is that sometimes your rhythms or your spiritual disciplines, they get lost. You're doing so much good but your practices are wonky. Your habits are wonky. If people got into your private life at times in this stage, then you'd be like, please, no, I don't want you to see that. <laughs> and the last thing in, in a way you can get stuck is you forget to remember where you came from. You forget your first encounter. You forget the burning bush. These are just ways that you can potentially get stuck. And in this stage, you can often experience the greatest temptation for regression and going backwards because you begin to get worn down, tired, beat up, exhausted, disappointed, disenchanted, and disillusioned. And by this point, it seems as though most people seem to believe that this is all there is to the Christian life. And so this stage may last for years, for years. And zest can sometimes begin to fade. And so what is the way to move forward? The only way to move forward, I could think of nothing else but enter the wilderness. That is the only way forward in maturity, is to enter the wilderness to enter into the dark night of the soul. Because it is in this stage that you often hit the wall. And we'll spend the next week or two weeks looking at, in depth, the dark night of the soul and the wall. Something that growing up I never heard in the churches I found myself in. But I think it's deeply important to have an awareness of it. Because there is more. There is more.